the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Hey, the number's 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And again, this is the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about God and the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. We talk about worldviews. We talk about world religions. We talk about biblical subjects. You know, one of the things that has been discussed a great deal. Um, and again, when we're when we're talking about suffering and we're talking about good and evil and we're talking about justice and then we're talking about social justice and then we ask and we answer the question, is biblical justice as social justice. And, of course, when you use the adjective social and you attach it to justice, does it mean the same thing when what the Bible says about justice? So when you hear that term, social justice, what does it make you think about? And it seems like an honorable term, you know, if it means being just in society. So the technical term social justice seems to drive our politics, control our educational system, inform our society. But it seems to me that we're like the Princess Bride. And you'll remember there's a character in the Princess Bride named Diego Montoya, who is constantly chiding Vincini, who keeps using the term inconceivable. And Diego Montoya says, I don't think that that word means what you think that it means. So we have to define our terms. Social justice is often used like a rallying cry from many on the ideological left of the political and philosophical spectrum. So there's an excerpt. And again, I'm not saying that Wikipedia is the do-all, be-all uh, place to get a definition. But I think it has an appropriate definition when it comes to social justice. It says, quote, social justice is a concept that some use to describe the movement towards a socially just world. In this context, social justice is based on the concept of human rights and equality and involves a greater degree of economic egalitarianism through progressive taxation, income redistribution, even property redistribution, these policies aim to achieve what developmental economists refer to as more equality of opportunity 
than may currently exist in some societies and to manufacture equality of outcome in cases where incidental inequalities appear in a procedurally just system, unquote. William H. Young defines it this way. He says, quote, state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. And it's that little term. It's that, that little term equality that becomes the problem. Within the social justice discussion, equality does not mean equal worth or equal dignity. Now, it may mean that to you, and you may use it in that way, but that's not what it means in contemporary social science. It means equality in outcome. So, for example, in economic Marxism, equality means everyone has the same amount of wealth. So in that worldview, that's called cultural Marxism. Everyone has an equality of outcome. So back to the Wikipedia definition, greater degrees of economic egalitarianism through progressive taxation, income redistribution, property redistribution. So the key word in the Wikipedia um, definition is egalitarianism. And so that word is often coupled with phrases like income redistribution, property redistribution, equality of outcome says a great deal about social justice. So egalitarianism as a political doctrine essentially promotes the idea that all people should have the same, that means equal, political, social, economic, civil rights. So this idea is based on the foundation of inalienable human rights enshrined in documents like the Declaration of Independence. However, as an economic doctrine, egalitarianism is the driving force behind socialism and communism. It is economic egalitarianism that seeks to remove the barriers of economic inequality by means of redistribution of wealth. Now, I want you to think about that because imagine a government that sees your ability to earn income and retain income. Imagine that that the government imagines that your ability to earn and retain wealth, that it becomes their wealth. And that's a problem. That's a problem biblically and ideologically. Because we have to ask a different kind of a question, and that is, do you have the right to property? Do you have the the right to work? Do you have the right to generate income? Do you have the right to retain that income? So it's economic egalitarianism that seeks to remove the barriers of economic inequality by the redistribution of wealth. And we see that implemented in social welfare programs 
where progressive tax policies take proportionately more money from wealthy individuals in order to raise the standard of living of people who lack the same means. So you'll get buzzwords like, you need to pay your fair share. So what is the fair share of the poor? Well, they have no share. They don't. 50% of, of, of workers in America pay no income tax whatsoever. So imagine if you live in a government that takes from the rich and gives to the poor. So imagine your government is kind of like Robin Hood. They see themselves as the writers of a really fundamental wrong. That it's their job to take from the rich and give to the poor. The difference between Robin Hood and the United States government, though, though is that in Robin Hood, the rich got rich by exploiting the poor. Is that how Elon Musk got rich or Bill Gates got rich? By taking advantage of the poor? I don't think so. That's not how it happened here. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number to call is 303-873-1935. You'd like to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. I was talking a little bit about, well, social justice and what it is and why it is what it is. And again, um, social justice begins to take on many of the characteristics of what I would call socialism, communism, economic egalitarianism the so in order to redistribute wealth you have to confiscate wealth and governments confiscate wealth often through taxation often through social welfare programs often through what some have called progressive tax policies but i think this is code for socialist tax policies. And again, the problem with this idea is twofold. First, there's this mistaken premise in economic egalitarianism that the rich have become wealthy by exploiting the poor. And much of the socialist literature over the past 150 years promotes that premise. And this may have been primarily the case back when Karl Marx first wrote the Communist Manifesto. And even today, it may be the case some of the time. What are some of the times that it might be the case? I think one of the most compelling cases is that you have four leaders of Hamas each have more than a billion dollars. 
So how is it possible that the Hamas leadership has way more than a billion dollars? Four of them have way more than a billion dollars. But the people of Palestine and Gaza in particular live in abject poverty. By the way, when they cut off the water supply, do you know why? That that was such a catastrophic event, not just simply for the cutting off of water. It's because there isn't an independent water system in Gaza. And do you, do you want to know in part why, Producer Jim? Do you know what Hamas did with the... Have you ever seen um, water tubes, you know, that deliver water to neighborhoods? Well, Hamas dug up the tubes and turned them into rockets as part of their program to kill the Jews. So did the leadership of Hamas take, take go to careful, I guess here's the way that I would say it. They confiscated aid to those people that was supposed to be directed for food, housing, and infrastructure, utilities, water, hospitals, schools, and they got rich. So are there examples of kleptocracies, nations who rule by theft? Yeah, the answer is yes. But is that true in every case? I don't think that that's true in every case. So there is the mistaken premise in economic egalitarianism that the rich have become wealthy by exploiting the poor, but that isn't always the case. And second, socialist programs tend to create more problems than they solve. In other words, they don't work. Social socialist and social welfare programs, welfare, which uses public tax revenue to supplement the income of the unemployed or the underemployed, typically has the effect of recipients becoming more and more dependent on the government handout rather than improving their situation. So every place where socialism, communism has been tried on a national scale, it's failed to remove the class distinctions in society. Instead, all it does is replace the nobility slash common man distinction with working class slash political class distinction. So what then is the Christian view of social justice? Well, the Bible teaches that God is a God of justice. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, we learn that all of God's ways are justice. And furthermore, the Bible supports the notion of social justice in which concern and care are shown to the plight of the poor and the afflicted. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner 
giving him food and clothing in Deuteronomy 24, 17. It says, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner. The sojourner is the pilgrim, the traveler, the person who's passing through, or to the fatherless, or take widow's garments and pledge. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19, it says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. So the Bible talks about the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. Now, and again, when the Bible uses that term sojourner, it seems to imply not just a wanderer, but apparently a a person or a group of people who are unable to fend for themselves and who have no support system. So the nation of Israel was commanded by God to care for those in society who were less fortunate, and their eventual failure to do so was partly the reason that judgment and expulsion came on the land. So when I say less fortunate, the way that I would put that is the oppressed poor. So the Bible actually does talk about the wicked poor and the oppressed poor. The oppressed poor seem to be people who are poor through no fault of their own. And the wicked poor seem to be poor as the compounding problems of making wicked choices has resulted in poverty or ruin. So is there such a thing as the wicked poor and the oppressed poor? I think that those are categories that actually exist in the Bible. And But in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, he mentions caring for the least of these in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, where he says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brethren, or my brothers, you did it to me. So apparently there will be and will continue to be a group of people who aren't just politically oppressed, but who are socially, culturally, economically oppressed. And in James's epistle, he expounds on the nature of true religion in James chapter 1 verse 27 where he says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit the orphan and widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world this is Gino Geraci thanks for joining me the number 303-873-1935 I'll be back Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, producer Jim Nichols, for the brand new bumper music. Really liking it. 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. 
873-1935. Let's see who's up. Harold, welcome to the program. Uh, hello, Gino. I uh, got a question. I've been reading in the book of Hebrews, and it occurred to me, you know, and there's so much about the great high priest and about Melchizedek and all that stuff. Sure. But what about sacrifices? Were sacrifices only offered at the temple in Jerusalem, or were the physical sacrifices, the burnt offering things, offered at the local synagogues too, synagogues too? If they were, they were done so illegally and inappropriately according to the Jewish law. So the way that that I would answer your question is that the sac so there were there were several things. Number one, there was a sacrifice, but the appointed sacrifices had to be done at the appointed place. And so, so your question is interesting to me on a number of different levels because number one, um, when I think about okay, how were the sacrifices ordered during the time? of of the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the sacrifices in the davidic or the solomonic temple and then the second temple which was destroyed by the romans and then why will there be animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom but, but i don't want to get off on a tangent too much but but to to your point to your point burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings had to be done in Jerusalem. Uh, so so does that mean um, that they couldn't be done in the tabernacle uh, in the wilder in, in, or the tabernacle um, in the wilderness? It, and the answer is yes. So it's Shiloh or Shiloh. Um, they followed the instructions that were given in in Leviticus um, concerning the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and the trespass offerings. When all of when the, so when the temple was done and then consecrated, those sacrifices could only only um, take place in Jerusalem. So, for instance, when the temple's destroyed. In 78, or excuse me, in 586 by the Babylonians, when Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon, they can't perform sacrifices in Babylon. Um, and when the Jews are dispersed in 70 AD, can they do sacrifices? No. Um, can Jews do sacrifices now? So, so, so the way that I would answer your question, there are Jews who believe that sacrifice is such an important part of what it means to be a Jew um, that they long for the to be able to reenact or reinstitute the sacrifice if you if you will so the short answer to your question is no you can't make sacrifices according to the Bible anywhere other than the prescribed place and the prescribed place is Jerusalem okay. And when then when the temple was destroyed, is that when sacrifices stopped? That's when the sacrifices ceased. Uh, but so there have been periods yeah, but, of time when when the sacrifice ceased. It's it, it it ceased during the Babylonian destruction of the temple, and then it ceased during seventy oh. A.D. So it's it stopped. So so the way that I would think about this is. Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews, is 
the final sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of sacrifices. So my view is that burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings that that are attempted are a wicked substitute. In other words, it's a blasphemous thing to think that a burnt offering or a grain offering or a peace offering offered now has any effect whatsoever. Jesus is the, is the singular sacrifice that satisfies the concept of sacrifice. So that begs to... So, it begs the question then, well, then why is there animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? But like I said, that's a different topic. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I think you answered my question, and I appreciate that. Hey, you are welcome. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> All right. Have a good evening. Thanks. 303-873-1935. But like so many calls, producer Jim, that come in, when I'm asked that question, well, you know, could Jews anywhere offer sacrifices? Again, I guess it depends on on what we're talking about. You know, w- w- when I'm thinking about sacrifices, I'm thinking about the Levitical sacrifices that were required in the Old Testament. So, again, begging that question, you know, not that anybody seems to be asking me the question, but if you'd like to know, um, will there be animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom? I guess I could just talk about it just because it's fun. But again, if you want to call me, it's 303-873-1935. So there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that indicate animal sacrifice is going to be reinstituted during the millennial kingdom. And the passages that mention it, at least in passing, are in Isaiah and Zechariah, and Jeremiah. And in those passages, the passage that's the most extensive, that gives the greatest amount of detail, is in Ezekiel chapter 43, through Ezekiel chapter 46. And you should just note that this is a part of a greater passage or chapter, or section that deals with the millennial kingdom. And that begins in Ezekiel chapter 40. And so the Lord begins to give details of the temple that will exist in the millennial kingdom, a temple that dwarfs all the other temples previously built, larger than Solomon's temple, larger than than uh, the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, which was uh, an amazing complex. And um, so after giving the details concerning the size and the appearance of the temple and the altar, the Lord begins to give detailed instruction on the animal sacrifices that will be offered in Ezekiel 43, verses 18 through 27. So in chapter 44, the Lord gives instructions as to who will be offering sacrifices to the Lord. And the Lord states that all of the Levites will not be offering blood and fat to the Lord due to previous sin. 
it will be those from the lineage of Zadok. So chapters 45 and 46 continue to mention that animal sacrifices will be made, which begs a lot of different questions, including, okay, why is this happening? And why is Z- why are the, the lineage of Zadok uh, the ones who are going to be performing the sacrifices? And with 23andMe and um, DNA and all of that stuff, how are we going to figure out who the direct descendants of Zadok are going to be? So, again, the primary objection to the idea of animal sacrifices returning in the millennial kingdom is that Jesus has come. He's offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. There's no need to sacrifice animals for sin. But again, remember that no animal sacrifice ever removed sin that spiritually separated a person from the Lord. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. There's more to that passage and more to the story. So hopefully when we come back, I can tell you the rest of the story. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935-303-873-1935. I was talking a little bit about, um, you know, the passages of Scripture that talk about the millennial kingdom and sacrifice in the millennial kingdom in Isaiah chapter 56, Zechariah chapter 14, Jeremiah chapter 33, and of course, the great big passage in Ezekiel chapter 43 through 46. And it gives this detailed description of a temple and an altar and the sacrifices and then who can who can who can perform those sacrifices. And I was talking a little bit about the objection, the idea being, well, um, you know, Jesus is the satisfying sacrifice. And so there's no need for sacrifice. And, of course, Hebrews chapter 10, which I was quoting um, in verses 1 through 4, where it says, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So sacrifices, all of the sacrifices that I've talked about um, in the Levitical outline of sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, they could not take away sin. So it's incorrect to think that animal 
sacrifices took away sin in the Old Testament, and it's incorrect to think that that's what they'll do in the Millennial Kingdom. Animal sacrifices served as object lessons for the sinner, that sin was and is a horrible, terrible offense against God, and that the wages of sin or the result of sin is death. So that in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So it's when you know what you're not supposed what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do that you go, oh wait a minute, I haven't done what God has asked me to do, or I haven't said what God has asked me to say, or I haven't thought what God has asked me to thought. And so the solution to the problem of sin isn't just any sacrifice, but it's the sacrifice of Jesus. So many premillennial scholars agree that the purpose of animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is memorial in nature. So as the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the death of the Lord Jesus to the church today, animal sacrifices become a reminder during the millennial kingdom. To those born during the millennial kingdom, animal sacrifices will serve as an object lesson. And so during that future time, righteousness and holiness will prevail. But you're going to have beings on our planet that have an earthly body, that have a sin nature, And they will need to know, they will need to be taught just how offensive sin is to a holy and righteous God. So animal sacrifices, I think, will serve that purpose. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, the ESV says every year. Another translation says year by year. And so, um, you know, obviously there are people who don't believe in a millennial kingdom. They don't believe that it's understood literally. They see it as some sort of figurative kind of event, but the millennial kingdom is given that title based on the 1,000 year reign of Jesus. And um, they understand that it's a figurative way of saying a long, long time. But six times in Revelation chapter 20, verses two through seven, six times the millennial kingdom is specifically said to be one thousand years in length. So it seems to me 
that if you just wanted to express a long period of time, you could easily have done so by saying, well, an indeterminate amount of time or a long time. But it seems odd to me that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7, it's used over and over and over again with that specific number. So the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns to the earth, he's going to establish himself as the king in Jerusalem. Now, there are those people who think that that's just crazy talk. N.T. Wright talks about, you mean like Jesus is going to come back like a spaceman from outer space, and he's literally just going to sort of show up on the planet Earth. I I know that that sounds crazy, even to to people who who describe themselves as Christians. But I've been doing some research and found out that um, that he's a preterist. But that's neither here nor there. Dominic, you have like 60 seconds, so I'm going to give you a chance to uh, talk. Okay, yes. I was just wondering, what about uh, baptism and uh, instead of sacrifice? When you mean, you mean as a substitute for sacrifice? Correct. Well, the way that I would think about that is baptism isn't a substitute for sacrifice, but rather a symbol of of the sacrifice. And so the way I would think about it is that baptism becomes a type and a picture of dying and coming back to life. And so that when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist says to him, you know, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And and then Jesus says, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. And I think what he's doing is talking about Jesus is identifying as a human being with human beings in their human condition. He's not a sinner in need of a savior, but he is he is a he is God who has become who's taken on an additional nature, a human nature, and now in, 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 believe, in the believer's baptism, we reciprocate, and we go, just like you identified with us, now we identify with you. Just like you I died and came back to life, I want to go on record that I okay. consider myself dead and have come back to life in Christ. Oh, great. Okay, this is Dominic Calderon, by the way. I know you. Hey, Dominic. Say hi to your mom. I will. You have a wonderful day. Night. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.